Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and welcome to the third season of Making Gay History. Just as I did for our first two seasons, I'm taking a deep dive into my decades-old audio archive to bring you the voices of LGBTQ history. For the start of this new season, we're bringing you the second part of a conversation I had with Sylvia Rivera back in 1989. Sylvia talked about her memories of the Stonewall Uprising and how she left home in 1962 when she was only 11 years old. If you haven't already heard that episode, I urge you to have a listen. So here's the second part of that conversation in Sylvia's tenement apartment kitchen in North Tarrytown, New York. It's Saturday evening, December 9th, 1989. Sylvia's friend Rennie has just left for work. On Rennie's way out, she asked Sylvia to save her a drink for when she gets back. Sylvia promises that of course she would, but as soon as Rennie is out the door, Sylvia pours herself another generous glass of vodka from a bottle that is already well on the way to being emptied. Sylvia's boyfriend Frank is in the next room watching TV. Frank, <laughs> what are you doing? I just realized you have to go and buy me some tomato sauce. I forgot to buy the tomato sauce for the chili. So could you go out and get that? And, huh? Um, pick up a couple cans, you know. Yeah, nice cans, not the little ones. Yeah, the jars. No, not Aunt Millie's. I need tomato sauce. We're not making pasta. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, you can sell anything out on the streets. You can sell men, young boys, and young women. There's always a customer out there, and they are the ones that are sick. I remember just going home and just scrubbing myself in a tub of hot water. Oh, these people touched me. I mean, it's sleaze. Even if they weren't old, they could have been young. I remember sleeping, when I was 13 and 14 years old, I remember sleeping with guys that were 20 and 21 because they were paying me. And they had their hangups. 
You knew what you were. I knew I was a whore at that time. I knew I was out to make money. And these guys were pretending they were something else coming to you for... They came for a fantasy trip. Uh-huh. That's what it was. It was a big fantasy. So how did the, how did the police treat you during, when you were a kid and out on the streets? The first time that I got arrested, I was like, I'm going where? What had you done? You were a faggot. Were you, were you, were you dressed in women's clothes? Oh, well, back then, when I first started out, I was in women's clothes. It was what, what they call right now, even right now, what I'm wearing is scare drag. Scare drag? Mm-hmm. What is scare drag? What I'm wearing right now. You don't have the tits on or anything. You just have a little makeup on. You have your hair out. You got women's clothing on. And that's what they call scare drag. Every time that I used to go in front of a judge, upper head female impersonation. Uh, that was a charge? Yeah. Upper head female impersonation. In other words, from the neck up. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. The laws back then were very strange. Mm-hmm. So from, let's say, up until 69, you weren't, you weren't involved in gay rights or any of that stuff, were you? Before the Stonewall, I was involved in um, the Black Liberation Movement, the Peace Movement. I just felt that I had, I had the time and I knew that I had to do something. And then when the Stonewall happened... You were, let's say, you were 19, uh, 18 years old then. Mm-hmm. You were still a kid by most standards. Yes. It was like a God sent thing to me. I mean, I just happened to be there when it all jumped off. I said, oh, well, great. I said, now it's my time. I said, here, I'm out there being a revolutionist for everybody else. I said, now it's time to do my thing for my own people. And I joined TAA. And that first year that we were petitioning for gay rights, on April 15th of that year. So it was 1970? Yeah. I got arrested for petitioning for gay rights on 42nd Street. You, were, you had a petition, was it for the yes. city gay rights bill? The city gay rights bill. Who were you getting to sign it? I was asking people to sign in, on, in the middle of 42nd Street. Yeah. Were you dressed in drag? No, I was dressed casually, mm-hmm. makeup, you know, the mm-hmm. hair and whatnot. Scared drag. The cops came up to me and said, no, 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 you can't do this. This is either you leave or we're going to arrest you. I said, well, fine, arrest me. They very nicely picked me up and threw me in a police car and took me to jail. For, right, for, doing, for taking out a petition? Yep. I went in front of the judge. Judge fucked two arresting officers. She's like, don't you realize what's going on? You know, I could see his look in his face. Well, number one, I says, I'm letting him go. He the says, policeman. Mm-hmm. He says, you don't realize what you just did. He says, the whole country is going up in an uproar and you are messing with people. Who are right. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now, were, were you part of, there was an, a protest at NYU? One of the sit-ins. I was one of the sit-ins. We always had dances there. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they didn't want us to have any dances there. 
it's okay. We won't have any dancers. We just took over Weinstein Hall. It was a nice sitting for three or four days. Mm -hmm. It was interesting. So you were there? Yeah, I was there. Mm -hmm. And my brothers and sisters from the, from the gay community themselves were not very, very supportive. Of you? Of anything that went down. At that time, I was sleeping in the park because I had already given up my job, given up everything for gay liberation. I was sleeping in Sherman Square Park, okay? And Bob Kohler came and told me, he says, we're having a sit-in. He was from GLF. He's one of the originators from gay liberation. Mm -hmm. And um, the people that held that sit-in in for three days was my people, the people from STAR. We were there, and everybody says, oh, it's because you didn't have a place to live. But that wasn't true. We could have picked up a trick and stayed at a hotel. But we were there for them, Marsha, myself, and everybody else. I mean, when they came in and threw us out, there was nobody there except what they call the street people or the star people. Was star formed already by then? Actually, Star. It's actually Star was born out of the, out of the, the NYU student. What does Star mean? Street Transvestite Action Revolutionary. What What was the reason for starting it? My brothers and sisters kept on using us, uh -huh. and we wanted to be by ourselves. Yeah, uh, how many uh, queens were involved in uh, Star? Was it a small group? It was a very four, small. It was myself, Marsha Johnson, Bambi Lamore, and Dora. Uh -huh. I had like several women in there. Okay, wait a minute. So it's maybe a half dozen. Yeah, a half yeah. dozen. Um, Bebe. Bebe mm -hmm. was part of my group at one time. Did you ever testify at City Hall with Bebe? Tell me about that. <laughs> I've heard stories. <laughs> Woo! And Miss June Bartell, I think it must have been the first time that we went. And, um, you know, I gave my point of view. And B got up and gave her point of view. And then after that, you know, so we would play cool, you know. We went to the ladies' room. Well, actually, no, we went to the ladies' room. They wouldn't let us in. This is the police? Yes. It's okay. We won't go in there. We'll just go into the men's room. And we went to the men's room. We came out. We, you know, fell out, you know, in a little line. And I, I forget the councilman's name. He says, and why should I have my children being taught by them, men that dress in women's clothing. Now here, BB is going to become a teacher, okay? And we're like, what is this man's problem? He, he just like really put us down. So June comes out of the bathroom and she walks right in front of the council table. She says, well, where the fuck do you want me to go and take a piss at? You want me to take my pants down right here and piss in front of you? And she's standing there with this little mini and she pulls up the mini and there's the G-string standing on and they're like freaked out. Here's June like, 
You know, they're like, oh my God, he's going to show it? Is it real? And it's, June, very nice. Oh, well, I guess we have to leave now. And she just pulled back her clothes on and says, now, tell me where I can go piss. No, but I did testify. I testified a couple of times. Mm -hmm. um, the gay rights bill, as far as I'm concerned, you know, to me, the gay rights bill and the people that I worked with on the gay rights bill, and when I did all the petitioning and whatnot, when the bill was passed, that bill was mine, as far as I'm concerned. I helped word it. And I worked very hard for it. And that's why I get upset when I give interviews and whatnot, because fucking community has no respect for the people that really did it. Drag Queens did it. We did it. We did it for our own brothers and sisters. But damn it, don't keep shoving us in the fucking back and stabbing us in the back. And that's, and that's what really hurts. And it is very upsetting. It's not only do you get beaten up by straights, you get beaten up by the gays. We get beaten up by young, and that's what hurts. Mm -hmm. Marsha and I fought a lot for the liberation of our people. We did a lot back then. Marsha and I had a building on 2nd Street which is called Starhouse. And when we asked the community to help us, there was nobody to help us. We were nothing. We were nothing. And now we were taking care of kids that were younger than us. I mean, Marsha and I were young, and we were taking care of them. And GIA had teachers and lawyers and whatnot. All we asked them was, well, if you could help us teach our own so we can all become a little bit better. There was nobody there to help us. There was nobody. They left you. They left us hanging. There was only one person that came and helped us. Once again, Bob Kohler was there. He helped us pay. He helped us put wires together. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. I mean, we took a building that was, I mean, a slum building. And we tried. We really did. We went out and made that money off the streets to keep these kids off the street. You sold yourselves to, to take care of the kids. Instead of showing them what we were doing. Because mm -hmm. we already went through it. But you wanted to protect them? What were you protecting them from? From the world, from life in general. Just about, you know, to show them that there was a better life. Who were these other kids? Who were the young ones? Where'd they come from? From everywhere. We had kids from Boston, California, everywhere. We had them. We were their families. I guess at home. So these were kids like you who had to leave. They 
They were good kids. Mm -hmm. I've seen a couple of them after, you know, the movement and whatnot, and they were all, the ones that I've seen, they've done very well. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes you feel good. Yeah, but if you got in your way, you would have had a, a building where kids could come and... I would have loved to have had a, to be honest with you, like every time I see the commercial covered in the house, I said I would have loved to have had that. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to have seen that. Mm -hmm. A star house mm -hmm. for the children, mm -hmm. for people that know. You know, these kids already know. You always get that feeling, mm -hmm. you know. You're, you're different, mm -hmm. so go somewhere. So they came here. You needed the help of, I would imagine you and, and Marsha did not have the, the resources, the experience. Uh, we just didn't have any monies. And we and you needed the help of GAA. We, we needed the monies from the community, and mm -hmm. the community was not going to help us. I got two kids. Oh, you did? Good. Yeah, Let me finish good. this chili, and then I'll make the rice. You get the can opener, it's all the way over there. Yeah, uh, so is there anything, yeah, that I, yeah. anything that I haven't asked you, any story, any, anything that you'd like to, that I should know? I'd like to do a lot more for the movement. The movement just doesn't want to deal with me. Sylvia's dream of a safe place for LGBTQ youth came to an end when she and Marsha were evicted from the derelict building that was home to Star House. But later that decade, in 1979, Dr. Emery Hetrick and his life partner, Damian Martin, founded the Institute for the Protection of Lesbian and Gay Youth. It's now called HMI, and you can learn more about that organization in Making Gay History's Season 2 in Joyce Hunter's episode. I wish I could say that in the years after I first met Sylvia, she lived happily ever after in North Tarrytown with her boyfriend. But her friend and partner in the movement, Marsha P. Johnson, died in 1992, and Sylvia's life went off the rails. She wound up homeless and living on an abandoned pier near Greenwich Village. Sylvia eventually stopped drinking and rejoined the movement, and in 2001 even tried to restart STAR, renaming it Street Transgender Action Revolutionaries but she died of liver cancer a year later. Sylvia was 50 years old. I've got a few people to thank for this first episode of season three, including our executive producer, Sarah Burningham, and audio engineer, Ann Pope. We had production assistance from Josh Gwynn. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Thank you also to social media strategist, Will Coley, our webmaster, Jonathan Dozer-Ezel, and researchers, Bronwyn Partis and Zachary Seltzer. Our guiding light since the very first episode is Jenna Weiss-Berman. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season three of this podcast is made possible with funding from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. So long, until next time. <laughs>